out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the musician, producer and writer. It's Hugo Race, all the way from Australia, who I spoke to recently. To find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff, was in lots of bands in his early years, including The Rickery, and then went on to work with Nick Cave and The Bad Seeds on quite a few albums that you'll hear about, plus lots of solo projects, um, including Hugo Race and The True Spirit, also Dirt Music, and lots of other bits and pieces that you'll find out about within this interview. So, yeah, sit back, relax and enjoy. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Hugo, it's over to you. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I must have had several, really. Um, I'm born in 63, so a lot of our references are going to be a little bit similar, aren't they? They could um, be, yes. I think uh, the years 1969 to 74 were kind of my crucible that impacted me and developed my sense of what, you know, how exciting music can be and how transformative it is for for a person's life. Um, they, those were great years for music, let's face it. 71, 72, 73 were people were making um Musicians of that era were making breakthroughs that uh, were so exciting at the time that could only really happen once, you know. Yes, this is um, true. Because it's that, it's that, uh, it's when the technology and and the vision and the and the music all get together and it becomes something new. Like you mentioned, Bowie, he was very good at uh, fusing all of those things together, and um, I think that. Um, uh, I'm kind of going through my mind a lot of the different records. I'm seeing all these covers flying everywhere of all the things that I liked back um, back in the day. I, I was I was fortunate that I was the uh, the fifth of five children, so I had four elders mm. who were all collecting rock and pop music through for as long as I can remember. So I always had it around me, which was um, which was a wonderful thing, you know, like. Um, the, I think the, the first record that actually really spun me around was um, was a soundtrack album, and it was the the soundtrack to Easy Rider, and I, I guess we probably got that in around about 1970. Right. And um, I really loved that record because there's so many different styles on it. There's uh, it's like a, Steppenwolf hard rock, and then there's crazy folk rock, and then there's, you know, if six was nine by the Hendrix Experiences, which is one of those incredible songs that uh, that kind of alerts you to how alerts you to the potential of um, of recording technologies, because all of a sudden you're hearing these things that you never heard before, and uh, it's incredibly exhilarating hearing sounds sort of pulled apart in, in those kinds of ways, backwards tapes and feedback and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. So I, I, I guess my love affair with music started 
around the same time that yours did in the early 70s. And uh, the bands you mentioned, like the glam stuff, um, we had all that on the on the radio. It's, uh, it was expensive buying records, so it was always a matter of um, discussion, actually, in the family as to what album to buy because couldn't buy them all. So, no. Um, uh, but having having four brothers and to, sisters was probably quite handy, actually. Oh, it was on on that level. It was just um, like I say, it was very fortunate. It uh, it gave me my musical background. Yeah. Yes, and were your parents at all kind of you know influenced by music, or were they just trying to keep the family going? They, they were they were kind of musical. I mean, my mum was definitely musical. She was uh, a pianist, not a professional pianist, but uh, she um, she loved to play piano until she was really quite old and well into her eighties. She was still playing the old favourites of hers, like um, Rachmaninoff and Schubert and all that yes. kind of stuff. She was very shy, so she wouldn't play if you were in the room. You'd only ever hear her playing in the distance, and she'd be uh, she'd pick up on the fact that you were nearby, and she'd stop playing and say, "Oh no, you don't want to listen to this rubbish. I'm not any good." I was saying, oh, mum, you're really great. Keep going. No, no, no. It was always like that. And um, my dad wasn't, he didn't actually play any musical instruments or sing or anything like that, but he really loved, he loved music. So it's fair enough to say that I grew up in a a household where there was a lot of music around and it was more about figuring out what, what you liked. I was fortunate to have that range of, you know, different kinds of music because dad listened to, um, classical music Broadway shows yeah 20th century continuum of stuff and, and you know of course there's, there's real gems also in that world of music it's very different to what we're into but there's incredible things um like I was very aware of Anthony Newley when I was quite young because he was a favorite of my dad's I'm sure you'd be familiar with him yes Mr Bowie's kind of him you know it's Anthony Newley face yeah, there was there was a kind of a link, wasn't there? Anthony Neely and David Bowie and Scott Walker—they all seem to be converging on uh, something interesting. I think, to my ear, at any rate, it was it was the accent that kind of connected Bowie yes. and Neely. But I know. I think Bowie Bowie, Bowie Bowie was a bit confused what he was doing in the sixties, so he was trying every little thing, wasn't he? And I think he's he had that little vocal moment with with Anthony Neely. So. Um, and then he had a bit of a folk thing with um, various other members of his, well, people he lived with, really, like the Feathers. I think there was a sort of a folk combo called the Feathers. And then he sort of got into a bit of rock, but then an R&B. And then it was it was then in the early 70s with uh, when he met, I suppose it was Angie Bowie and Tony Visconti and Mick Ronson. Well, especially Mick Ronson was the one, wasn't it? So um, that that was the game changer. Yeah, it's difficult as a uh, aspiring musician figuring out where you where you fit into the scheme of things and uh, trying to understand because all musicians use their influences. Trying to understand which are the ones that will be constructive for you, you know. And I, I guess that's what someone like I was doing. They were trying on different disguises in, in a way. And I don't know if um, someone like Bowie actually ever 
became Bowie in a certain sense. He was always putting on masks and taking them off. Yeah, that was uh, very much our our early seventies rock world grew out of a lot of different traditions, and and you know one of them was definitely British theatre and uh, the big shows of pre technological times with you know the variety shows and all that kind of thing. So that all factors through the English music. I was always um, fascinated by the difference between American and English rock music. It was always, that to me, growing up, those, those were two completely separate worlds. And, um, of course, they weren't, but they were very much intermingled. But at the time, with the, the very little information that I had access to, it seemed to me like they were two hermetically sealed cultural environments, really, you know. Um, Sorry, I'm yeah. rambling on too. No, no, that's fine. Because I think in a way, what, you know, like with that, I think the environment makes a huge difference because it was only when I was once driving through America in the desert landscapes that I started to really appreciate the work of the eagles a lot more than I did when I was in the UK for some, it was also I was older, but I thought, oh yeah, you couldn't, yeah. Joy Division couldn't have made that sound in this landscape because it's too yeah, blue right. it's too warm it's too it's also yeah it's just deserts with a few palm trees here and there and a few shrubs and it's kind of like quite dreamy it's a bit like that that little clip of david bowie when he's in the back of the car and he's a bit coked out and he's looking at his milk and talking about that fly but you know he's just kind of grooving to aretha franklin ah. but you kind of realize that when ian curtis was and, and joy division were making the sound that they did in the late yeah. 70s that kind of grayness and that kind of gothic vibe yeah it was it was gray skies and sort of you know wet concrete you know and bricks it was quite um grim really wasn't it you know you can imagine it was kind of for you know the light the light was very sort of sparse i suppose that's my theory so i think i think they, there is something about those cultures being so different because they were singing about such fantasy weren't they you know i mean they were nice little kind of scenarios but they were just something else you know and also yeah, the I first think, time I've, yeah i was going to say and also with you know people like elton john and Ber bernie tolpin i mean again he sort of tapped into this american mythology and talked about sort of you know cowboys and the westerns and and sort of Marilyn Monroe and people like that which was were completely different when yeah. I first heard you know goodbye the album goodbye yellow brick road you know I was kind of fascinated I was quite young at the time and it was just all these characters I'd never come across you know but um it was a it was a fantasy wasn't it yeah it was very much a fantasy um what, well I guess one of the particular things about growing up in Melbourne, Australia, is that both the US model and the British model apply depending where you are and what you're doing. It's Australia, in a lot of ways, was the intersection for both those cultures. At least they were offloading a lot of their cultural commodities onto Australia. And so maybe in some ways, you know, there was kind of a choice. Um, as 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 to which way you know your tastes might run, and ultimately with with me it ran more towards the uh, the American sort of variant of, of rock music, ultimately. But um, but some of the biggest influences on me also came out of the um, 
out of the English post-punk. So it's kind of like both things get get mixed up over here in Australia. It's a, it has cold winters here that you can definitely relate to a Joy Division aesthetic in <laughs> August in Melbourne. Yes. And then when it's like high summer like it is now, you can you can relate to the Beach Boys as well because it's it's hot, it's blue skies, the surf out on the water, and everyone's walking around in thongs. So yeah. Good. Yeah, dreadful idea. Um, so when when sort of when when you were a little bit older, just really, did punk? When did punk sort of sort of come into your kind of consciousness? Because that's because to be honest, <laughs> I, I I was kind of in the countryside, so we didn't really culturally things never kind of reached us at all. But um, and also my brothers weren't really into punk either, so I didn't have that influence. So what was it like for you when things started to change and you started getting your the sound both from the UK and Britain, but also Australia. It was um, it was really the day uh, my brother Tim came back with. He had um. He had never mind the bollocks, and uh, I think it was a little bit after the release because I I remember the um first public image record from around the same time. It could be that because particularly back in those days we were. In Melbourne, months and months behind, and the records had come out in these big containers, and so distributors might wait until they had a whole lot of releases ready to ship, and then that all come out at once. So, we I didn't have a very strong sense of a, of a timeline of when things were being released, but I think it pretty much all happened within the space of a year for me. That um, that uh, Timmy came back with uh, London Calling, Never Mind the Bollocks, and um. And then there was this Wire record, and and then it was just game on. Some new record stores opened up in Melbourne um, that gave us access to gave us access to like, and it, it's, yeah. it, it was quite phenomenal how fast all that happened. It all happened within a year or eighteen months. There was the the time before the um, the new English music came through. And then there was the time after, and um, I seem to remember it all happening. I was still in, in school, I bet you were too. And it was all out of context, you know. We didn't have the um, sort of dystopian British environment to connect a lot of the sounds with. So they were taken at face value. Does this sound exciting? Does this not sound exciting? And, and man, it really did. It turned all my ideas upside down about, what I would like to do in music because even by the time I was 14 or 15, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life was just to be a musician, basically play music, have a life in music. Yes. When did you get a guitar? When did the guitar come into your consciousness or just into your hands? Um, I was pretty young. I'm not really sure. I would have been about 10 or something like that when I got like my hands on the first nylon string guitar. And um, and then one of my brothers, he had a band and I'd go out to the rehearsal room. I would have been about 12 by then and I'd see all the gear that they had. And so I started to get an idea about what music gear is and different kinds of guitars and keyboards and stuff like that. And in the end, um, me and another kid at school I went to, we, we were kind of like a, a little band, just the two of us. And um, we were looking for other people to join and uh, a school band. 
And around that time, my brother's band broke up and they were all going to university and they wanted to sell their gear. So they offloaded it to us for like next to nothing. So very, very quickly, we um, we had some small amps and, you know, for shitty electric guitars and a few honey keyboards. And we could actually start um, imagining uh, what it would be like to play electric music. Because up until then, of course, we didn't have any electricity in our music. We were just playing with a piano and a guitar and trying to write songs. Yeah. which um, were at that time pretty much what you would expect kids in the mid-70s to be writing influenced by people like Bowie and Lou Reed and, and so forth. Um, so it wasn't very original. But once we started, once we had a bit of electricity and we had these new records coming in, it was it became very exciting and this sense of being on a mission to create um, some incredible new music that, you know, there was this sense of like we were in this... Um, position poised on some kind of unknown frontier so I think that excitement is what really propelled me into spending the rest of my life um, doing music you know because it seemed like there was something new to be said and this this fresh kind of consciousness coming through the music this is all around 1980 that I'm thinking of yes I'm about 16 16 years old that's right and did because before that was this the dum-dum was it dum-dum Fit. This was the early band. Yeah, yeah Dum, it was actually Dum Dum Fix, but somewhere along the way on the internet, it, it got a T instead of an X. But yeah, that was a um, that was one of our really early things, and it was very much influenced by the Fall. Really digging the early Fall records at that point, also because besides just the racket that they that they made. That kind of very lo-fi recording sound was something that we could do ourselves. So it, you know, there was this kind of connection between lo-fi sounding um, cool music from from uh, the UK and what we actually sounded like on our own cassette decks. We had no idea uh, about recording processes at that time, but really dug the lyrics. And um, Perubu was another big influence on that early band. So it also liberated us from the idea of having to really play music. It was more about playing an attitude, really. Yes. So that did that then lead on to the plays with the Marinettes? Was this your next? God, you going through bands at this stage is quite exciting in in such a. Yes, there was this. Um, there was this scene in Melbourne where people would start bands and then leave them the next week. There were like lots of bands happening all over the place and uh, there wasn't at all this sense that, you know, you were getting into a band because it was going to be a long-term proposition. It was going to be kind of a job or something serious. It was like really just all for the hell of it and the excitement at the moment. But essentially this was the same uh, group of people um, that had met at high school and then acquired some new friends along the way and that became in place with marionettes. And, um, and that was the first band that we actually dared to go out and play in public with before then it was just parties and, and bedrooms and suburban houses but plays with marionettes actually uh, dared to go on the, the, the pub rock stages of melbourne and play art punk music and yes. um surprisingly enough people people really dug it so it was it was a great time 
Yes, I could imagine. Then, sort of, in the 80s for us, this was kind of, you know, the, the UK was kind of poverty-stricken, really, in lots of ways. And, you know, we'd got the sort of Thatcher government coming in in 79, and then there was the Falkland War and the miners' crisis, and then there was Greenham Common and this kind of threat of nuclear war. So there was a lot of people yeah. who were just unemployed. I think this is one of the reasons there's so much kind of indie pop during that period, because um, right. it was obviously just a golden day time for sort of kids feeling like there was nothing to do apart from sign on, get social security and sort of form lots of sort of slightly interesting and quirky bands. So what was it like in Australia at that time? It was... Um... It was sort of idyllic in some ways because there was this great geographical disconnect. So it was possible to feel very isolated from things that were going on in the UK or the USA. It just all seemed so very far away. And the Australian reality was quite a uh, matter of fact and prosaic. What you see is what you get. You know, there wasn't a wild sense of, of fantasy. Uh, there wasn't a sense that we were a nuclear target either, at least I, I didn't have that feeling. I, I felt like we were kind of spectators and the, the social values of that time were very mid-20th century. It, uh, it seems like a fantastical world looking back on it now because it didn't have that interconnectivity that we take for granted now. Yes. It felt like um, it felt like um, what did it feel like? There was this great relief after the end of the Vietnam War, and we all thought, okay, well, we're not going to get conscripted. And there was a left wing go government in there for a while. There was there was a certain phase of of I'd call it sort of general optimism in the um, in the seventies in Australia. Um, that carried over into the 80s. I mean, if you look at the new wave music of Australia in the 80s, it tends to be very upbeat, very uh, summery. And um, it seems to represent a country that's kind of in its adolescence, really. Yes. I guess we'd had sort of um, the saints, but then, you know, a bit later on, I suppose, during the 80s, there was the sort of the golden period of the go-betweens and the Triffids. I'm sure everyone talks about those, don't they? But um, yes, there, there was there was the sort yeah, of... Yeah, they're, um, they're very much, yeah, iconic bands of that time. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the, I think the Triffids and the go-betweens are very representative of what Australia was like back then much more so than the music that I was making at the time or that my friends were making. I think they more exemplified the, the general vibe of the, of the place. Yes. So then how did you, I mean, sort of then sort of 83, you sort of, um, how do you sort of make that transition from being into your, the bands that you've been with to sort of being working with um, Nick Cave, which is, which is quite a, a kind of moment. How did that sort of come about? There was um. That, that happened fairly gradually over the space of a year or so. And um, the I just remember this one time where basically the birthday party visitors 
visited us backstage at a little gig we did in Melbourne. And I think that might have been the first time that we actually got acquainted. And it was probably in about 1981. So it was a few years before, I think. I think the connection between me and Nick really came about through mutual friends because there was a small enclave of people in Melbourne at that time who were promoting a different kind of aesthetic to the, the Triffids or the go-betweens, and it was a much more Melbourne point of view where, you know, um, just to speak of, of the obvious variables, like this is a much colder city than Brisbane. Yes. It's... It doesn't have that sense of release. It's more of a, a city that kind of drills down upon itself. And I think that um, for those reasons that a lot of uh, like 20th century art music, and I'm thinking about um, art movements as well, I'm thinking about Dada and surrealism and all of that made a lot more seemed to make a lot more sense to us in Melbourne than it did anywhere else, and those things got incorporated in, into the kind of music that, that we were making. So I think that there were already stylistic similarities between what plays the marionettes were attempting to do and what the birthday party was actually already doing very successfully, and that made them a little bit curious about us. And um, and then of course. They were just lovely people, so we got along and formed friendships. And then, as the um, as the birthday party was dissolving um, in '83, that was when uh, Mick Harvey first started playing drums in place of marionettes because we had a problem. We a drummer left, and so one night at, a, in, at the pub, I said, "Mick, well, why would you do it?" And he stepped in. And that was very exciting um, for me personally, actually, playing the songs with uh, with Mick because he brought this whole other level of power to, his, to, to the sound. And that was the first time that I realised that it was so much about the people that you've got in, in, in the band that actually create the sound. It's not the studio, it's not the producer, it's not the singer or the songwriter. It's like the, the, the drummer and the bass player, like this is where the whole thing is built up from and and I kind of learned that from playing with Nick for the first time. And and then Nick wanted to do this tour. And um, and luckily for me, he asked me to fill in on guitar. So I went and saw um, Roland around that time and said, look, I'm, apparently I'm going to be playing some of your songs. How do they go? And as usual, he was incredibly lovely and, and showed me the, some of the little tricks that make the riffs work on a record like Mutiny. Um, because once again, it's, it's not so much the music, it's actually who's playing it and how it's done mm. that makes it distinctively what it is. When you just see it written down, it's, you know, there's nothing really to it. So this was um, my kind of early schooling in, uh, in um and what it really took to um, to put on an incredible live show was through those guys, through the birthday party, and then through Man or Myth with um, with Nick. And then basically, what happened next was that um, Nick wanted to finish making his record from Her Eternity. So he and I basically made a deal, which was uh, I'd come over and um, and support him in that for six months. And then I'd go back to what I was doing before, and and that's exactly what we did. 
Yes, that sounds a perfect way to spend a year. What was it like? Because obviously you're, you're playing with completely different players now, aren't you? There's Barry Adamson, Blixer, um, yeah, Anita, you know, and and Mr. Thurlow as well, who who was in Fetus. So yeah. um, so that was yeah. quite a quite a trip. Did you, was that was that an exciting time? Yeah, that was an exciting time. All right, that was just amazing and. I was definitely um, a new kid on the block and I was just sort of soaking it all up, really. Just learning everything was was highly educational to me. All of those people were light years, light years ahead of where I was at that time. So I was just basically learning off them. Yeah. And they were very, um, they were very kind um, to sort of bring me into the team and give me that kind of insight. And it was a very exciting time. And, and through playing with the... Um, the early bad seeds. I met a lot of uh, amazing artists and made connections with people, and um, and all of that came back to be part of the mix of my life in the in the decades ahead. You know, all of those connections that I made back then. So look, it probably was the most exciting um, musical time of my life, and just completely unrepeatable because it's there's something so precious about when um, you when you really don't know. And you start to find out about how it's done. It's 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 quite a magical thing. So that yeah. was a magical. And how was Blixer? Because obviously, culturally, he comes from quite a different world, doesn't he? Well, Blixer was um, superficially very hostile in general at that point in his life. He was um, he was either experimenting with his own persona or he was just working through something but uh he had a great sense of humor that made up for it and obviously his ideas about art were astonishing and in that period of 83 to the end of 84 um it definitely that my exposure to Einstein to know about and definitely Really changed my idea about what music can possibly be. It confirmed thoughts that I've already had, and you know that's true of all the people um, in that lineup back then, because that was an incredible group of people. And essentially, they were my um, they were my little private school in the music business. Those people. <laughs> Yes. And what was it like trying to record the material just in sense of people getting it done on especially that first album, you know, because sometimes, oh, you know, it was it was difficult. It was difficult because. Um, because Nick was uh, on a mission to do something far beyond the birthday party. But it I don't think he knew or anybody knew what that could possibly be. So there was this exploration of form on that record. It is a strange album from early eternity. The way those songs are arranged, the length of them, they break all of the um, rules of traditional songwriting. They, they're kind of outside. They have structure, but the structure had to be imposed during the recording process and it meant that things were recorded over and over again there was a lot, a lot of work done on that record a lot of things were recorded and taped and didn't quite work and then were added to or abandoned so I guess that was um 
that was really all about Nick searching out his own distinct musical identity beyond the birthday party. He definitely had some kind of rules for us in the studio. So if, you know, if you started playing something that sounded like a guitar riff to one of those songs, you know, you'd immediately be shouted at. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want any riffing here. And so then you'd scratch your head and you'd go, what do you want? Um, So I remember um, that the sessions would often go uh, all night. Maybe that was the time that the, the label was able to buy were late night sessions and people would come and go and disappear and it took days to to get things together but um i do think it's a really odd record and and a really great one but i don't think that there's another record like it in in the bad seeds catalog it's it's kind of a unique thing from her returning yes but then when after that project you come back and you start another band the recre yeah, that's the same bunch of blokes that I'm going to catch up with next week for the first time in 35 years to make a new album with after all this time. It's It's got so, a... <laughs> yes, that's quite amazing kind of connection, really, isn't it? Yeah, it, it all, it, that all started because uh, some members of the band, we hadn't really spoken for decades, but they got back in touch and they said, listen, there's all this interest in the 80s. We, we must have some unreleased material and or some live shows. I, I have archives of all of that stuff. And I said to everyone, yeah, but it's dated and it's nothing that I'd be really proud about presenting to the world. So let's not bother. And, and that went along for a couple of years. But the, the guys just kept knocking on the door saying, we really think, you know, the, we should have something about the recory back in the 21st century online world. And uh, so then I challenged them and I said, all right, well, let's make a new record. Are you up for that? You know, that's something that I could get excited about. But um, dusting off old work or things that we didn't think were that good back in the day that weren't released and then putting them out doesn't seem a really cool way to move forward with this at all. So I managed to convince everyone to um, get together and make another album and we'll see how it goes because we haven't been in a room together since 1988. Isn't that funny? It's funny. It is funny. It's just weird, isn't it, really? I know, so suddenly weird. chapters, chapters, if you like. I know. So you've archived the material that you've done, but you're just going to say, look, let's just see what our next phase is. Yeah. Like some of that archival material I put out over my Patreon site. Right. Just for the um, small group of subscribers, and it's kept within that private circle. and And... I find that a positive thing to do and it's great to get people's feedback um, on those things. But when it comes to presenting new work to the world, I think, you know, time and energy and effort should be put into it because there's so much noise around us to cut through the noise. You do need to deliver really high level work in 2023. And at least that's what I try and do is, is maintain that level of work. And hopefully these new songs that I've been uh, writing for the band will, will work out. I, I wrote them specifically for this band and I wrote them specifically with the memory of the 1980s in mind. So it's kind of, it's not what I what I would normally write. I've actually gone out and created this kind of recory cartoon album and um, I think it sounds okay. I'm pretty excited to see um, what the band actually do with the material 
and it's also a way for me to play some kind of rock music again for a change because I haven't been doing a lot of that in recent years. Yes, yes, in- interesting. I know. So, have you got the, a studio and a timeline sort of booked for this kind of next project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. Um, the idea is to do it in the old way, which is to record it and release it very quickly within the space of about six months. Blimey, it's going to be exciting. As opposed to the way that most of the records that I release um, at the moment are made, David, for example, is this one record that we're mixing, which is a record that I've made with the Italian musician Gianni Maroccolo, who used to play in a, a, uh, an Italian band called Lit Fever back in the 1980s, and they were the biggest band of the Italian new wave of that time. And Anyway, Gianni is still going, and so... In 2020, we got introduced by a mutual friend and started making this record, and we're mixing it now. So it's like kind of three years from the beginning to the end of the process, and that's um, also um, pandemic-related. But not only, it's um, it's also this sense of, of of taking your time to discover things that you find personally interesting that you think are going to be uh, interesting to convey to people, you know rather than just kind of releasing the first idea that you come up with. So it's a more thought-out process, but I think the record is going to be more thoughtless process and it's going to be like, okay, everyone's in the room together for four days, everything gets recorded now, this is the next session, you know, no, we're not going to like edit it all up and quantize shit and, and fly and stuff. It's Let's keep it to an 80s aesthetic as if we were recording to tape. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. And- so just um, going back to when your band started, you then, you work with Nick again, don't you, with his kind of album of, um, is it covers that he puts together, which is Kicking Against the Brick, Pricks, as they say. Yeah, the that uh, friendship with Nick went on pretty much all through. Um, through those albums, uh, even, in, even I'd even probably include Tender Prey, that album in the late 80s from the Bad Seeds in there because this is not, I was living in Melbourne at this time and and, um, Nick had kind of turn up and basically say, look, I've I've booked out this time if you you want to come by, come by. And so there was always something exciting going on down at the studio go down there and just days would disappear, actually, particularly with kicking against the tricks because that was very, um, very interesting record to work on. For, amongst other things, each of those songs had to be deconstructed and they, a lot of them were really not very simple songs. They were examples of um, a previous year of songwriting where harmonic structure was just something else compared to what rock music became in the 70s. Yes, uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of a song like Delilah or something like that. You know, so like deconstructing that in in a way that made sense for everyone. That would take hours, and there'd be various false starts before stuff kind of came together. And then, of course, Nick's um, always been highly critical of of his own work. So it was working with him was always a process of, of aiming for the best at something. That, the best that something could possibly be rather than settling for anything that was second or third best. That was never part of his approach. Yes. Did those songs, because there's a, there's a great version of Long Black Veil on the album, 
Was that the, yeah. the one of the first times you'd sort of heard or played a song like that? Uh, yeah, in a way it was. Yeah. I didn't have country music in my background, so that was all something quite new to me, or Bull Rider. That was another one we did, another Johnny Cash track. So none of that music was particularly familiar to me, and I didn't really know how to play it, um, which probably helped because it meant that I played it in an ungainly way that may have helped to contribute to the final effect of it being other than a cover version somehow, uh, Yes. A morphic cover version, you know, fact that um, I didn't have that background. I knew, for example, um, Johnny Hooker a lot better. So when we did um, uh, I'm Going to Kill That Woman, I think we did that as a live session tag. Pretty sure we did. And so I kind of knew what was going on um, in that space. But even a song like The Carnival is Over, I, I vaguely remembered it from a long time ago, but these were interesting songs that seemed unlikely that Nick would pull them in, and I think that's what made them really interesting. Yeah. Oh God, it's a classic. It's a really, you know, it's a great, you know, that's a great period, you know, for music generally. But you know, some some bits like that. So then, is that you then sort of work with Nick again a couple more times? But how do you sort of balance between your band and sort of this other commitment? You know, especially if you did you do much touring with Nick at this stage? No, I just did stuff in the studio. I um, I had my own chaotic life sort of tumbling over itself, and um, and uh, other bands and and other interests. So the eighties for me was really like a learning process. That's why I was just kind of picking up all of these different things and trying to sort through what I was going to do with them. Um, because, you know, I was planning to continue to make music indefinitely, but I really wanted to come up with my own particular fusion of things. So I was still, like, looking around and, yeah, with the record we were playing a lot, um, but that band fought a lot amongst themselves, so it wasn't all that much fun. And um, I was quite relieved when that was all over, and, um, and that's when I moved to to Europe for about 25 years. Yes. Um, Did you and, go to, um, was it Berlin that you yeah. ended up going to? Yeah, I was there for a while. I started off in London, um, spent months in London, and then started going backwards and forwards to Berlin. Had to make a choice between whether to stay in Berlin or in London, and I chose Berlin. Did you come across a, um, Did you come across a producer yeah. called John... Caffrey at that stage he did um yeah I did but I I'm not sure that I know John Caffrey personally but I know um I knew of him by name and he was working with um other musicians who were friends of mine yes I asked because I did I just last week I did an interview with him so I just and he seems to have like been around and I thought god you must have crossed paths somewhere down the line so Close, but never that close. Did he, did he work with Crime in the City Solution? Was that him? I think it might have been might on the bride ship. I'm not quite sure. That was a um, that was an amazing time to be in Berlin in the eighties, in the late eighties. Yes, uh, it was. Uh, 
it was a little bit like Melbourne in the early 80s. So there was this great ferment going on. So, so when you went out and experienced what other people were doing, you often came away feeling really inspired. Um, people were doing challenging things. They were doing things that hadn't been done before. And that just has, a, has an effect on people. It inspires people. Um, and that's what we, we keep trying to do, come up with, with new ideas, new sounds, new ways of doing things. That to me is what you know, what music and pop art is all about. That um, we're we're living in a period where there's, there's lots of copies of copies of copies and so on and so forth. So it's uh, we're living in a different time. But I do remember uh, Berlin when I first moved there. It was early 1989. It's being a really alive place where you could go out at night and um, wake up the next day and you'd be slightly altered by whatever you'd experienced the night before. Because <laughs> so also the wall, the wall had just come down as well, hadn't it? Well, eventually it came down. I was there all in that build-up to it and through that whole process. And, yeah, that was an amazing time. I've got to um, send you a copy of my, uh, of my book because um, I talk about all this stuff in, in a lot of detail. Um, in this book called Road Series. It's a, it's a long chapter about that time in Berlin and what it felt like, what it smelt like, you know, what it tasted like. Because um, it was, I guess what, what I think is, is unique about it is that it wasn't commodified. Um, it was before commodification of, of culture became the norm. So it was this, it was this kind of, how, how can I put it? It was like, like um, there was nothing to be gained and there was nothing to be sold. There was only um, this opportunity to try and outdo yourself in, in coming up with an idea that went beyond what you had done before, what someone else had done. But there wasn't any notion of career or financial gain or any of the other parameters that seemed to, to guide the music um, in this period of time. Now it was it was much more wild west, and um, I'm just I miss it, but I, I don't live in the past. I'm just glad that I was there to experience it. At the time. Yes, but you brought a band together, didn't you? Or got a band together, the True Spirit, at this stage, and recorded an album. Yeah, yeah, the, that was um, through friend, different friendships with uh, some great Berlin-based musicians. There was uh, Rhino Link from Dehout, who, um, of course, were great friends of um, the birthday party and the Bad Seeds, and um, a couple of other guys that had been in a band called Fluchtmuck Fawn earlier in the 80s, which had been an up-and-coming German band. And um, I got together with these guys and also with one of my old mates from Melbourne, the drummer Chris Hughes. Um, and he became a really important collaborator in, in the true spirit. And we um, we started a, a period of producing some some uh, pretty cool records with the support of German record labels. And we based ourselves out of Berlin. It was uh, very much an Australian-German kind of combination in the early days. And and uh, it changed over a period of time, particularly with the, the personnel in the group. It, it really was very difficult to um, 
keep everyone available to to do recording sessions and to go on tour and people were like drifting off and living in other cities. People were just trying to be free and succeeding in being free to a large extent. Um, for example, Chris eventually just drifted off to Prague and based himself there for a very, very long time. And so once again, even after doing those three or four True Spirit records, I found myself kind of um, just working as a solo artist again. And um, uh, I put out a solo record and then I went back to Australia and um, got a record deal there and, and put together like a second version of the True Spirit. And yeah. Yes. You were on normal records, weren't you? And then Glitterhouse a bit later on with that um, particular lineup, well, not lineup, but that particular band that you'd got. Did that? Um, did your sort of musical influence change quite a bit during that time? You know, as you were sort of taking in more different musicians and meeting different people. Yeah, it did. I was um, very much into the electronic side of music by the time I got to Berlin. Um, I was interested in this idea of combining rock with electronics and the I was doing that to some extent, but the problem I had was actually uh, getting a hold of the instruments that I needed to do it live. So there was this kind of tension in the situation where I wanted to do one thing in the studio that was a bit experimental, but then when we performed live, essentially what we had was like a rock band lineup and... I was kind of uh, struggling with which way to go and then um, through a process of making demos to get another label behind the band, I had to um, put the sort of the more experimental stuff to one side and just focus on, on writing songs that meant something to some people in an immediate way um, as, a, as a means to get back into the studio really. And so that's what I did for um, this record called Valley of Light in 19... 96 which i thought was like a commercial rock record but you know and i liked it of course i spent so much time on it but it wasn't really what i wanted to do and, and during the rest of the 90s the the music of the true spirit became more and more electronic and the record label um, became more and more exasperated with us and, and we eventually parted ways and then got back together about five years later when they'd caught up to where we were at and we put out the gold street sessions um, in 2004, there was a the true spirit has kind of like this long, snaky history of of constantly trying to um, make experimental kind of rock music albums and um, having trouble with uh, support from labels and all that kind of stuff. It's very much the history of the band. Yes, because I did um, a couple of weeks ago. There was a guy called Mark. Reader, who's in, who went to Berlin in the early, from the UK from the early yeah. 80s. He was on fa factory records and then sort of, and, and was explaining in detail the whole techno scene of Berlin. And there was another guy, Craig Walker, as well, who I think was in an Irish band called Power of Love. I might be wrong on that, but they're both in Berlin and, you know, both have talked about this techno scene, which is so important. Did that, was that already part of, you know, the, the kind of musical fabric? Of, of Berlin when you were there I just wondered if you started to pack, uh, pick up on that kind of world um I didn't really but Chris Hughes did a friend who was um, such a key person in, in the true spirit he was um 
very much swept up into that scene of uh, East Berlin lofts and techno parties and and that kind of stuff, which never really kind of excited me particularly myself. I, um, it just didn't. I was, I guess, just interested in other things. I was still trying to find this fusion of what I thought was roots music with um, with the future, futuristic roots music, but techno to me seemed like music as a utilitarian support for a different kind of experience and in itself didn't really engage with me personally but on a, on a larger in the larger picture there was this um tremendous electronic music scene in in berlin and we we hooked into that in um in other ways through people like chris lohas and ralph droger um, who came in, worked on our some of our records and brought a lot of that kind of transversal, anti-musical, sort of quasi-Neubauten-esque, you know, aesthetic into things. And, of course, that we loved that. I mean, that, was, that was really thrilling to have that aspect. Um, but I, uh, I, I left Berlin about 1995 or something like that. I mean, I kept going back there. I just wasn't based there. I was... Um, I was based in Melbourne for a while and then down in, um, that was the point where I started uh, living in Italy towards the late 90s and um, and kind of still do to some extent, basically, between Italy and Melbourne and have done for decades now. There was something about uh, the Italian environment that I just found uh, creatively inspiring, I guess, and, and so I, I gave up my apartment in Berlin and sold off all the stuff and ended up in Sicily for a few years. Amazing. God, you've, you've really sort of moved around, haven't you? That's quite amazing. Yes. Do you, you know, does that sort of give um, free you up, sort of being sort of almost like a, a tourist in a different city, you know, being able to sort of soak in whatever, you know, influences there are? Yeah, to some extent, and it's also just what happens if you if you follow up on random encounters and coincidences that come across your path as you're going along, and you just kind of think, well, actually, what if you know, what, what if I decided to go into a you know produce some collaborative records in in Sicily? What would they sound like? Um, and then I just get excited by these ideas and. I drilled down on them and um, that became pretty much the last, well, at least the last 20 years of my life is just making different records with different people and not really having a brand name um, because they all come out under different names on different labels and some of them are highly uncommercial records and some of them are more commercial records and they're all, th they're all things that I personally want to do and they don't really have much to do with whatever the, the fashion of the day is or the flavour of the month. The reason why I'm making that kind of music is always going to be for another reason, such as the chance encounter with someone who basically changed the way I thought about something and then became a creative partner and so I thought, okay, let's go and do that for a while. So I'm just really fortunate that I've managed to keep enough backers in the music industry so as I can keep releasing music because in terms of having a, a kind of a, a career profile identity, I've done all the wrong things in that department. 
and um, but I did them for the right reasons. Yes, this is true. So, with with when you were in Italy, then you you set up your own production base here, Helix. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, because this, that, that was exactly the time when I was making different records like Sepia Tone and the Marilla Matrix and Transfargo, all these different projects coming out, and I was finding little niche labels in Italy that would um, would release the music and. It was just a tremendous sense of freedom for me. I don't know. It was literally like I found myself in a position where, um, provided I could get um, the studio side of the music together, provided I could come up with master tapes, no matter how crazy or absurd the idea was, I could find somebody to release it. So um, I was just loving that period. That was just great. Yeah, absolutely. I know from various um, artists who couldn't get arrested in the UK because they were quite quirky, you know, sound. I think I'm thinking of one called Shelly Ann Orphan. I mean, he's sort of been picked up on some Italian label or producer who said, look, I loved your work back then. Do you want to come and do a project with us now? And um, it's kind of interesting how different countries will just pick up a certain artist and sort of take them to heart. And even if they can't get arrested anywhere else. Um, yes. Absolutely. There's somebody out there. Could be Spain. Could be Italy. Could be Switzerland. And, yeah. and that's what can keep you going. That's what can keep you going. You know, is you just get a really good um, situation with with a following, a lot of support in just one geographical area. And then, as an independent artist, that can just keep you rolling. Can give you the the, the support and the independence you need to just keep keep on creating, which is all that I really wanted to do. Um, I never had uh, a game plan about career and success or any of that stuff. In fact, the kind of values I grew up with were not those values. And, of course, that makes me feel a little bit like a fish out of water in today's world where those seem to be the, the dominant social values. But um, it doesn't really matter anymore because we're from the 1980s. <laughs> and, it, and it's all so long ago. There's nothing we can do about it except um, just be authentically who we are and and that's uh, that's the business that we're in right now there's nothing else left to prove but looking back it has been a really uh incredible fantastic uh, trip through time since those early days that we spoke about before and you know i'll tell you something david i've never been so busy in my life as i am right now um producing also other artists who i really admire um and helping them get their work out, doing different collaborations with people. Uh, um, and it's just, like, musically speaking, creatively speaking, the, right now is just a fantastic time for me. and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I don't feel any kind of pressure to do anything except, um, you know, follow what seems to be, like, a really good idea. And just, yes. that's it, nothing else. Because last, about 10 years ago, you formed the fatalists and this was more um was that sort of more of an italian kind of uh project was that why you called yeah it? i moved i moved up north so i i i didn't stay in sicily all that long i was only there off and on for probably four years or something and then i uh i met these guys um further up uh, in Emilia-Romagna, um, 
and we kind of connected and one thing led to another and within the space of a year we'd recorded this record which was just under my name but the record itself was called fatalists and this was like a reinvention for me because um after doing a lot of the electronic and kind of genre hopping stuff that I was doing in the in the 2000s, um, I wanted to write kind of classical songs in the old school sense of um, sort of folk songwriting. And that was also uh, where these particular group of Italian musicians were really at. And they were really looking for someone um, from the English-speaking world who had that kind of material so as that they could put them in a kind of uh, sort of Italian Mexican musical setting. Right. So when I met the the Fatalists, they were actually a band. So it was uh, an existing band called Sacri Cori, Sacred Hearts, that grafted on me as a, as a vocalist and then we called ourselves Hugo Race Fatalists. But it was um, it was wonderful because, of course, they had this incredible chemistry. They are incredible musicians, some of the best I've ever worked with um, in terms of just sheer musicality and just this instinct um, for harmony and rhythm and inflection and nuance and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was, uh, it was a dream come true, actually, being able to work with musicians with this kind of versatility who, who shared a, a common uh, love for music and uh, they were all like huge enthusiasts of um Everything from classic Dylan to uh, um, Tans Van Zandt, Tim Harden, and, and this whole kind of like melancholic folk school of, the, of American music. And so we worked on our version of that kind of thing across several albums, and it became a really popular um, uh, live act in Italy. So we found ourselves touring constantly in Italy. Um, so when the uh, when we had the travel restrictions opened up last year in 2021, that was the first thing I did was go back to Italy and play about 50 concerts with those guys, um, just from the north to the south, just everywhere. And it was a beautiful way to come out of the um, the uh, the home arrest situation was to be back on the road and meeting those audiences and playing with those people. It was actually a really really wonderful moment in time and. Um, I still really love playing with that band and we're not over yet. We put out a record called Once Upon a Time in Italy this year, but um, that's not where the story ends. We're going we're to keep on working together because we really enjoy it and um, it gives us a lot of a lot of freedom to try out um, new ideas in, in that particular genre. And this doesn't, for me, this is good because it doesn't complicate what I'm doing in, in other areas of music where I'm working more instrumental or electronic or that kind of stuff. It's like the Fatalists is this particular thing with deep Italian roots and lots of friends. It's a, it's a really lovely project. Yeah, my God, that's amazing. And and actually, you've put out three albums in the last four or five years, haven't you, with this particular sort of... Um lineup or project oh yeah we can bang them out they um i send them the songs and they go right okay we know what to do with this and then it, it all kind of comes together very quickly yes um because we're, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel like we are in other other bands in this band where we're, we're um 
cleaving to an established mode of of, of songwriting and storytelling, and um, and yeah, that's, I love that stuff too. I've got a, like you, I've got a very eclectic love for music in all kinds of different forms, and I've never seen any reason why. I shouldn't um, explore all of those forms, although I've had multiple managers and record companies that have all told me just stick to one thing and make that your thing so as that people can understand who you are. And I've just never really been able to accept that limitation. It seems to me such a waste of a lifetime. I mean, you know, life is short, so why not go deep into all the, the beautiful forms of music that we enjoy? Why just restrict ourselves to one thing because it's, doesn't seem to make sense. No, my God, look at David Bowie. I mean, you know, all that uh, material. Yeah, so they don't know what they're talking about, do they? Um, so yes, yeah, so this this coming year, you've got lots of projects. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16-year-old self starting out, is there any particular sort of advice or like a nudge or bit of wisdom that you would have just whispered, even if they ignored you? I just wondered if, if there was something, you know, that you thought, oh, yes, I would have just said that. Oh, I think I've got a 400-page book to tell my 16-year-old self that. <laughs> a lot of information that I would love that kid to have been aware of. Um, you know, because it, it has, uh, has been somewhat unusual the road I've trodden on, but I wouldn't change that for anything. I think... Um, I really wouldn't know what to say to my 16-year-old self. I think I'd be so horror-struck knowing what it had to go through in the future that I'd be speechless. And maybe that's why I wrote my book, Road Series. Yes. Um, when did you, When did this book come out? It came out in 2016. And um, I'll, um, I'll shoot you over a uh, PDF of it so that you can um, have yeah. a gander if you're interested. Yeah. Amazing. I know. I think, um, oh, yeah, the guy from the Limes, Lime Spiders sort of sent me a, no, he didn't send me a PDF, but he told me he'd written a book recently as well. So um, it's oh, one cool. of those. That sounds great. Yeah. So, yes. Was that an interesting process, putting all your life into 400 pages? Oh, I didn't write it in that way. I, I wrote 14 chapters and each one is just about a place and time. I didn't attempt to write an autobiography. They're like um, 14 different kind of, you know, gonzo journalism excursions into the dire heart of the music business. It, it really started when I first started with this other project that we didn't talk about called Dirt Music, um, which is a band that I've got together with a guy called Chris Ekman, who's a uh, the singer-songwriter from The Walkabouts, an American band from Seattle. And we started this band called Dirt Music. And uh, it ended up uh, that we started visiting West Africa and recording there um, with uh, Tuareg musicians. Um, and when, after those first trips with Chris in Mali, that was when a publisher in Australia contacted me and said, look, I heard you've been doing this thing. Would you, do you want to write something about it for this um, literary magazine? So I did. 
And then effectively what happened is from that point on, the publisher said, well, look, could you actually give us a whole book of these things? So I wrote a few more chapters and then I guess it probably took about two years or something to write the book. Um, and I didn't attempt to write about everything. Like I write very, very briefly about the Bad Seeds experience in that. And I write much more about West Africa and Eastern Europe and South America and and those uh, adventures that I had there, mainly because um, the locations are really exotic and the uh, the politics are really um, bizarre. And I get to mix the the exotic location and the politics of what's going on together with the people that I meet and the music and and it it kind of this really explains why I do what I do. I feel because it is all of these things together. It's it's not just strictly about. Um, the music, it's also about who I'm with and and where we're doing it and why and what we're learning from the experience of being there and from the experience of working with uh, people from very, very different backgrounds. Um, where where that project uh, music is now is uh, about five years ago, we rebased in Istanbul with um, by collaborating with Murat Ertel from Baba Zula, this incredible Turkish band, Babazula. And so we released uh, one record that we made there in, in Istanbul, um, which is uh, one of my favourite albums that I've been involved with, called uh, Bubi Ruya. And, and we're planning to meet up again in Istanbul in June and, and, and record a follow-up to that album. So I think that's something else that I'm really looking forward to this year. My God, that is an amazing project, isn't it? Because I, I guess it was John Peel that introduced me to a lot of kind of those. I mean, it's a very sweet, sweeping statement, but you know, the African sounds of people like the the Bundy Boys and the Four Brothers. And there was this other band that collaborated North Africa with, I think, German called Dissidenten, who had this kind of electric kind of sound, as well as yeah. kind of um, yeah, North African sort of rhythms and chants, and it just sounded awesome. So yeah, this must this must be an amazing sort of shot of cult, you know, complete different culture for your spirit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and also it uh, it makes you remember why you're doing it. You know, it's kind of like so back in the early '80s when everything seemed like it hadn't been done yet, and you had to get out there and and come up with your own ideas and you'd have a shot, you know, at, uh, at getting it on a stage and getting away with it, basically. That that sense of excitement, I guess I found that, again, doing those sorts of projects, you know, making records in, in Mali or in South, in Brazil, or, you know, because it, 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 it just changes it all for me. It makes it, makes it real to me. Um, and, and it gets me excited about doing what I'm doing again. Um, and I've never been good at um, just kind of like going back in, into the same situations with the same people. And I, I guess I have that, uh, something in me that needs that constant reinvention and, and like new uh, creative stimulus or something like that. Otherwise, I, I just don't see the point. Um, but um, ha having said that, I'm just about, to start a record with the blokes that I, I saw in 1988 playing rock music next to works. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love. I love. We're all, full of, of, we're all full of these great contradictions at times, aren't we? But, total uh, contradiction. <laughs> 
as long as you can kind of be aware of it, I think then you're right. It's a kind of it gives you a pass, doesn't it, to say yes, I'm aware that. Um, yeah, and you got to laugh about it too. And you, it's, yeah, it's really, really important. I, I reckon we'll we'll definitely be having a laugh making this record in a way that we weren't laughing when we made the first uh, music record in Barmaco, which we had a few laughs, but they were of a different kind. And um, <laughs> and time time um, passes and uh, you kind of find yourself back to where you started. My God, with the, the referee next will be a bad C3 and God only knows if we live long enough. <laughs> well, I, th I think there is that kind of, on that personal level, I think there is that moment where you think, I definitely wouldn't do that. And then you realise because you've got the idea of time and then you realize that actually perhaps we don't have so much time and then actually there's no point overthinking it it's like well let's just do it at least we won't totally. we won't regret it because we're going to just spend this little bit of time but we can't that's right get, you know so let's just do it be be efficient with our time in this this kind of project and then just yeah. we've, we've not we're not lost anything we haven't particularly uh, yeah done something drastic in our lives we're just kind of giving it a bit of time but you can't have it when you think oh actually that that situation can't happen which you realize in the 80s you just can't have that concept that someone might not be there to do that thing or that person might not be there to ignore them <laughs> to say no I've still got an issue with you so I'm just going to but then one day they go oh shit they're not there okay that's kind it's of so true and with this, with this particular band, everyone's still alive, which is wonderful. Yes, you know, everyone's still here, which is, which is great, and it, it's actually one of the few bands that I've been in that I can say that of because a lot of the other people disappeared. Um, so that that will be interesting. Yeah, um, and um... but yeah, that's where my head's been at over the last few days is just uh, getting these demos together, and it's. It's going to be really bloody incredible. That's all I can tell you. Yes, it'll be a moment when you walk into that space <laughs> and um, think, wow, kind of, that'll be a wow moment, won't it? <laughs> sure, I hope so. We, you know, we're just human beings on this planet and it's all going to be very, um, yes, it's good to fill it. It's good to fill it with things. But I think the dirt music sounds amazing, actually. I'm going to definitely... Um, we um have have a listen to that because it's interesting. Check, check that out. It's it's one word dirt music. I saw it is. Yes, there you go. Yeah, unlike uh, the the book and the film, which are two words, so that's it's an easier way to to, to track it all down. Okay. But like I say, I'll I'll send you this um this copy of Road Series and and there's I think there's three chapters in there that are all all set in in um in Mali talking about what actually went on in those. Uh, Interest, very interesting recording sessions. Yes, and you also got the one on Berlin in that book as well, did you say? Yeah, yeah, and there's also there's also a chapter about the Rekkery being on tour in Australia in 1987, I think it is, um, which is is quite hilarious because it talks about the moment where we had our our um, offer for our big break into the mainstream music industry in Australia and we completely blew it. Um, it's a very funny story. Yes. I won't give away the details to you now. Don't give away the details. Well, it's <laughs> it's kind of one of those, God, I, sorry, I just, who did I? Didn't into, God, my memory's gone. 
Well, I did an interview with somebody yesterday in a band. Jesus Christ, my memory is really gone. And he was just saying that they had that kind of thing. They could have stuck with Beggar's Banquet and and with you know for the publishing, or go with Warner's, which was much more money. And they went with Warner's, and that was a complete disaster. And um, yes, it was kind of one that you know he could have just said to himself, "Don't go, don't go do it for the money," because you know at least with Beggar's they liked you. You you know Miles Copeland was the man, you know kind of there manager and he was yeah. he believed in you and it was ten thousand but warner said here's twenty five thousand but we'll have your publishing but we'll just stick it in a cupboard and you'll never we'll never we'll never do anything with it and uh that was that's what he would have said to his 16 year old self don't do it with them for the music you know so um well yes. I, that, that sounds like sage advice sage advice um there's been the 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 music business is just full of disaster stories that people that followed the money and found themselves up in a padded cell. Yeah. And that, yes. No, it's got to be, it's got to be about the music. It's got to be about the passion for creativity or it's, or it's just empty noise. And we've got so much of that. We don't need any more of that. We need, we need stuff that's kind of really heartfelt and comes from the soul and it's thought out rather than just uh, kind of classical chord sequences that are repeated on different instruments. It's a, but you know, like I'm not negative at all about the, the, the um, creative music world. There's incredible things happening all the time. But um, I only really notice what, what accidentally comes across my path, you know, and uh, like I was saying before, a lot of what I've done across my time has been to do with chance encounters with people and coincidences and there hasn't been necessarily uh, any business logic behind it. No. Um, and I don't really regret that at all. I think that was kind of a good, I'd tell my 16-year-old self that, just go on instinct and yes. uh, don't trust the money people. Yeah, to put it in a few words. I think as long as, because actually I remember now, it was from a band called The Boy Show, Bolshoi. And I think he said it kind of just killed him. So he never played music again. And I think as long as you have yeah. never had that experience to say, I'm never going to play music again. And it's just burnt me so bad. So at least you've had the completely, yeah, you know, an experience which hasn't made you want to just give up the thing that you love, which must kind of eat you with inside. It's um that's that's you know, life has been good, basically, hasn't it? Been amazing, absolutely amazing. Amazing story. We're here. Well, Indeed, and I said it. That was me in conversation with Hugo Race talking about his life in music. And he has got a very good website as well. You can go to, just go to, um, he says, look in hugoracemusic.com. So check that out. And also various other social media platform sites. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.